0: Picture in your mind's eye a middle aged judge in the prime of his career. He is a highly respected judge who presides over cases with integrity, with skill, and a gracious zeal for justice. This man is a widower, his wife dying long ago in childbirth, and his daughter. A lesser man may have despised her for this history, but his wife's death deepens his loving devotion to his only daughter. Sadly, the girl seems born to find trouble, and more of it than her father could ever imagine. She's a young adult now, living in a large city, has not visited her dad for a couple of years. One day, a troubled young woman is brought into trial before him. He studied her case. He does not recognize her name. But as she enters the courtroom, he is stunned to see that the defendant is his own daughter. Over several days, a case is made against her, and the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Her father is heartbroken to learn that she married A gang member. They robbed a bank together and she murdered five innocent people in that robbery in front of multiple witnesses. Now, just think on this illustration, this parable of sorts, converging. In this good judge's heart is the bitter interplay of love and justice. It's brutal. Every fiber of his being longs to acquit his daughter of her crimes, to rescue her from these consequences. He loves her with all of his heart. He cannot bear to think of his precious daughter living out the rest of her days on death row. But what can he do? To free her from the consequences of her crime would be a gross miscarriage of justice. He cannot declare her innocent because he knows she is not innocent. To overlook her crime, to use his power in some way to release her or to allow her to escape the country or something, it's impossible. He cannot declare her guilty without his heart breaking with sorrow but he has no options. This story illustrates the fundamental dilemma with which every world religion is really involved in striving to solve this dilemma. All world religions have some sense that God is just and that sin must be forgiven. Now, the, the structure of it, how it's all put together, might vary widely, and there might be multiple gods involved. But on some level, the divine holds us as human beings accountable, and there's some makeup that we need to do. At least at that level, world religions are dealing with this dilemma. but they really have no answer for how a God who is wholly righteous can justly love and forgive sinners. Even the Old Testament never fully answers this conundrum. How can God be just and at the same time justify sinners who break His law over and over again? Well, in Romans 3, we find the only answer to this conundrum, and much of the New Testament brings out the answer, but nowhere more carefully than right here. We find the answer to this conundrum. It is the answer that no other religion has ever imagined. In fact, it is an answer sinners naturally reject, and every world religion actively opposes. When I come to religion, you come to religious people, and what is presented here is offensive. Now, many times it's not understood, and so it's kind of glossed over, and it's accepted on some level where people tag into it. And there are those with the name of Christian They believe themselves to be Christians who really identify far more with other world religions in their offense to this idea, to the solution of this conundrum of how God can be just, absolutely holy and righteous, and at the same time forgive those who have broken His law. This, what we find here, Against so many is indeed the very good news of Christ. God has devised a plan by which to justi- justly justify sinners. Now, we've learned in Romans 3 and verse 9 that Jews and Greeks are under sin, justly condemned. We noted that in 3 verse 9 of Romans. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. If we have already charged at all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That is, there is a condemnation that is there for God's chosen people of Israel as well as anyone who's not part of the nation of Israel at this point. Why is this? It's for it's written. The Old Testament brings bears witness to this. Verse 10, that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And here lies the offense. We are justly condemned before God. But beginning at verse 21, God reveals the final solution to the justification conundrum. We're going to pick up verses 19 and 20 as we noted it last week. But let's note, first of all, as we come to verse 19, to put it with what we're considering here today in verses 21 through the end of the chapter. But we find, again, reminding ourselves of the bitter reality. Everyone stands guilty of sin and deserving of God's just wrath. Verse 19 now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul is particularly focused here on the Jews who are God's chosen people. Remember, God gives to Israel His written word and He marks them as His holy people with the right of circumcision. They are His. By election, by God's choice, by God's love, Israel belongs to God uniquely out of all of the nations. But even in this privileged position, the Jews, like the Gentiles, stand guilty of breaking God's law. Every mouth is stopped, and the whole world is held accountable. There's the picture of the courtroom The judge hands down the verdict. Before him stands all defendants that have ever lived, in some sense that ever will live. And they stand before God and the verdict comes down. All have sinned and broken my law. And there's absolute silence. There's no defense whatsoever. Guilty of lying, guilty of stealing, of gossiping and slander. Guilty of lust and greed and envy and anger and selfishness. Guilty of not loving God as God and loving ourselves as if we were God. All guilty. And as the judge gives that verdict, I find the defendants guilty every last one. There is this silence. As one commentator puts it, the defense withers in their throats as the verdict is announced. Paul clarifies, verse 20, "...for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin." By works of the law, no one will be justified. It is not by what we do. It is not by obeying the law of God that we have a right standing with God. This is not how it's done. It cannot be this way. The reason is that God's holy standard of behavior does one thing. It's not an avenue to heaven. It's an exposure of where we fail. When the law is given... We simply see that we don't keep it. I think that's the idea there at the end of verse 20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It is not through the law comes the stair step into heaven. God calls us to do this and not do this, and we obey and we enter into God's presence. It's not that. It's through the law comes simply this, the knowledge that we fall short of the glory of God. That we don't obey Him. We break His law again and again. So the law reveals to us how incapable we are of pleasing God in our own strength. This is the bitter reality. Everyone stands guilty of sin, deserving of God's just wrath. We are silent before the judge. This young woman standing before her father in this courtroom has no defense There are witnesses. There are cameras. She did this with a clear mind. She took these lives in selfish rebellion against God and in breaking the law of the land, she murdered five people. There's nothing to say. And so we stand before God in that very place. There's nothing to say. But there is good news in this. Secondly, beginning at verse 21 through 26, Jesus' sacrificial death satisfies God's justice and ransoms sinners who put their trust in him. Jesus' sacrificial death satisfies God's justice and ransoms sinners as they put their trust in Christ. Verse 21, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. But now, two simple words. Cherish these beautiful words. This is the bitter reality. But now, there's news. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God here. That is, you are unable to gain a right standing before God by doing good deeds. God is too holy. You are too sinful. But God has provided a way by which you can have a right standing before him. This right standing, this righteousness comes from God, not from your own good works. It is not manifested in obedience to the law, although Paul is quick to clarify there in verse 21 that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Don't get me wrong. They are bearing witness to it. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is valuable. He is synchronizing the message of Christ with what has been revealed by God through the ages. But this righteousness of God, this right standing with God, this righteousness in God allowing you to have a right standing with God, the Old Testament has spoken about it and pointed to it. Now, the Old Testament never solved the dilemma of how God can be just and justify sinners, but it did point there, verse 22, the righteousness of God, the law and prophets bear witness to it, that is, to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here's the point. Your right standing before God does not come by obeying God's word. Does that make you a little bit nervous? I mean, it it does on some level. That doesn't sound quite right. Your right standing with God does not come by obeying God's Word. It comes by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. See it again, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a new manifestation. It is a new unfolding of a new era of salvation history. It's not a new way of salvation. Salvation was always by faith in God's promise, in God's word. Nothing has changed there. But it is a new era because Christ has come. And the good news is that this righteous standing then is not achieved by keeping the law. And the good news is that this other way of gaining a right standing before God is for all who believe in Christ's work. You see it there, verse 22. This universal offer through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul pushes that point further down the road here, right at the end of verse 22. Just catch that phrase and into 23. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean in context? should be following the argument here if we can see this. It's clear for there's no distinction is between Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction between that nation that God has chosen and those that are outside of that nation. There's no difference between them. They have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. Jews broke the old covenant. Gentiles who did not have that law of God sinned against its dictates written upon their conscience. And so all people of all time fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean, to fall short of the glory of God? What is the sense there? We fall short of sharing God's glory, reflecting His holiness. The holiness that we were created to reflect Adam and Eve were created to reflect, we don't do it. We fall short of that glory. We are not the people that God created us to be. And so in this way, all fall short of the glory of God because of sin. Again, that's bad news. Here's the good news in a single verse that essentially summarizes the New Testament. The whole entire Bible. Verse 24. We're going to pick through it piece by piece, but let's bring it in. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory that God created them to reflect, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified. Although sinners, anyone can be declared righteous by God, acquitted of all charges that are rightly leveled against us for every sin that we ever have or ever will commit. Grab that. That is beautiful news. That's what we're finding revealed here to us. We couldn't make this up. We couldn't put this in God's mouth. But all those sinners... Anyone can be declared righteous by God, acquitted of all charges that are rightly leveled against us for every sin that we have ever committed or ever will commit. We can have this standing with God. All has sinned, but all, anyone, can be justified by His grace as a gift. By His grace as a gift, you can have a right standing before God, you can be declared innocent of every violation of God's law, but you must grasp this, that standing comes from God. That's why we say it's not a right standing on the basis of our obedience to the Bible. How vital that is, how important that is in our relationship with Him, but that's not how we gain a right standing with Him. It comes from God to us. And it is an undeserved gift of His grace. So the salvation is not in us as we obey God and achieve His approval. The salvation is outside of us and given to us as a gift. Then we obey the Bible. Then we strive to walk in fellowship with Him as we honor that word. But we do not gain access to God by our obedience. It's a gift. Let's say it again. We've sung of it today. This is a gift we'll never deserve. It's just grace. It's pure grace, and it's going to stun us throughout all eternity to think of it it's just grace it's a gift you'll never earn it it's freely given to sinners now that's wonderful but it does create a troubling dilemma we come back to it and we can just dismiss it and think past it but really when we're thinking clearly about this and when we're looking to our salvation and saying is it real then it brings this dilemma this conundrum How does God declare me innocent when I'm clearly not? How does God give this gift of his grace and still be just? I have lied. I have stolen. I have disobeyed my parents. I have cheated. I've been unjustly angry. I've been filled with lust and envy and pride. How can God declare me righteous? How can God be right to do that? In our story, the judge cannot render an innocent verdict for his daughter and be just. It's just impossible. Here's the answer, verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This grace comes not by God pretending I'm righteous when I'm not. This grace comes not by a miscarriage of justice on God's part. It comes by Jesus purchasing me away from the guilt of my sin, buying me, ransoming me, redeeming me, purchasing me out of my sin. Jesus pays a price to rescue me from the just consequences of my sin, indeed from sin's very power. How does that happen? God puts Jesus forward, verse 25, God puts him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God publicly put Jesus on display as a sacrifice who satisfied God's just anger against sin. As a propitiation. That is, God's just wrath must punish sin. And Jesus took that punishment. Do you believe this about yourself? I'm going to ask you individually, looking deep in your heart I deserved to die for my sin. I deserved eternal punishment for my sin. To suffer God's eternal wrath is what is due to me. Do you believe this? Do you believe this also? that Christ Jesus graciously died in my place to suffer God's wrath for me. I deserve the wrath of God. If you you can't come to that place of just really admitting that, that I understand this, I deserve the wrath of God for my sin, then you got to start there. There's nowhere to take step two. And if you miss that, you really are bypassing everything else that follows. But if you say, yes, I see that. I have broken the law of God time and time again. I stand before him in this place that we've seen in this chapter, silent before the judge. Then can you see that Jesus Christ stood in your place and paid the full penalty that you deserved? God put him on display. He put him forward to appease the just wrath of God by his blood. This forgiveness of sin is, Paul insists again, to be received by faith. You see that verse 25. Now the second half of that verse This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. What does that mean? Prior to the death of Jesus, God passed over the sins of His people because there was no way to declare the unrighteous righteous. Nothing had happened in salvation history which permitted God to do that. To be wholly just in forgiving sin. Everything waited upon the death of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Here is the solution to the conundrum. And everything that came before anticipated the solution, but it wasn't here yet. God delayed judgment in his forbearance until Christ came to provide the final answer to the age-long dilemma of how God could justify sinners and still be just there will be Old Testament saints in heaven. And it's not because they offered sacrifices. It's because they trusted God. And whether they knew it or not, how much they perceived of it, they trusted God in a sense on credit. They were looking ahead to what God would do to satisfy His justice for us. Everything waited upon the death of Jesus as the Lamb of God. So what the judge in our story could not do, what no human religion has ever figured out, God accomplished by sending Jesus to die for sinners. Christ's death, verse 26, was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus. The he's here speaking in his of, of God, it was to show the Father's righteousness at this present time. That is, God did not demonstrate his absolute justice prior to the cross, but now he does. In this new era, God demonstrates his righteousness such that he shows himself to be just and the justifier of those who believe. How can you be guilty of sin and declared innocent? We come here to the very heart of the Bible. We come here to the very essence of Christianity. How can you be guilty of sin and declared innocent? Jesus took your sin in his body and paid the penalty of God's just wrath by dying in your place coming to trust that message, coming to receive that rescue from outside of me is how we gain a right standing with God. It is Him coming to us by His grace as a gift saying, Jesus suffers for you in your place, in my place, condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So now God is holy, just, in justifying and declaring righteous the sinner who has faith in Jesus. Now that makes it personal here. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. He demonstrates how He is just so that He might be just and the justifier. We see that. He's just in that He fully punishes sin, rightly so. But He's also the justifier, declaring the guilty innocent on the basis of what Jesus has done. But notice the personal part at the end there of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's shorthand, to be sure, but that's you. That's me. It is for the one who has faith in Jesus. That is, it is for the one who throws his or her full dependence on what Jesus did. Is that you? Do you have this kind of faith in Jesus? if you are trying to earn God's favor by living a good life so that He will accept you into heaven, you do not have this kind of faith. You're tagging into the kind of faith that's so natural in this world, that is presented by all world religions, by very many religious people, many of them claiming even Christianity, but you don't have this kind of faith. If that's what you're thinking you're trying to earn god's favor by living a good life if you are trusting in your baptism or your religious knowledge if you believe that your ability to see how other people break god's law means that you're okay with god that's not the kind of faith that saves you don't have this kind of faith if you're thinking that way I see how other people break God's law and it means that I'm his child. No, it just means that you are perceptive enough to see where other people break his law. Your salvation from sin is not achieved by giving your best to secure God's favor. That statement has to filter in by the power of God. Because that statement has been made in this church for decades. And we've seen time after time after time how it just falls like water running off the duck's back, as they say. Hitting hard ground and running off without sinking in. It's got to sink in. I implore you, in the name of Christ, Let it sink in. Your salvation from sin is not achieved by giving your best to secure God's favor. It is received as a gift from God who secures your redemption by Jesus dying in your place and rising from the dead. It is by faith in that. Now verse 27 seeing this bitter reality followed by this good news. And the Bible, in a sense, encapsulated here in verses 21 to 26. Paul ends this section, or we could say that he starts the next. Verses 27 to 31 kind of tie uh, the two sections together as he moves on to a bit of a different theme in verse 4, really actually developing the theme of faith. But I think there's here, as he finalizes his thoughts, a strong warning. Beginning at verse 27, there's a strong warning. Do not trust in yourself. Good works and religious devotion save no one. This is repetitive on some sense, but there's this kind of final warning here. Make sure you get this, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. The law of faith is a play on words. Paul is simply saying all religious pride is crushed to death. We do not boast in ourselves when we realize that we are not saved from our sins by doing good deeds, but by believing in what Jesus Christ has done through His saving power. It crushes pride. And throughout all eternity, we will celebrate the grace and the goodness of Christ we won't run around patting each other on the back of how wonderful people we were. We may indeed praise God for good deeds that were done and for obedience to Him and what God accomplished through us, but not in the realm of salvation. We will glory in Christ alone for all eternity. All boasting will be crushed verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He comes back to the theme here. This is the heart of his thesis and a point he's now preparing to develop in chapter 4. But justified by faith is a right standing before God received as a gift from God which we receive by trusting the work of Jesus on our behalf. But it's all apart from the works of the law. The works of the law are are not a means of pleasing God. Obedience is vital for fellowship with God. We should be reading our Bibles. We should know what God is saying. We should be obeying Him. That is all right and good. It's vital for fellowship with Him if rightly understood. It is vital for our reward in heaven. But not obedience to earn salvation. Salvation is by faith alone. For those here last week, let me go back to an illustration. I'll make it not so morbid as how my children drowned last week. Uh, I needed to rework that one, but some of you have been gracious to support me in that. I love my kids. Um, and by the way, I was crying as they died. I just want to add that from last week. <laughs> but, but let's bring it back to that scene. You're out in the middle of the ocean. There's no one around. There's no one who knows where you are can find you and the boat sinks and you don't grab anything on the way down. It's just you and the ocean and you got to swim to shore somewhere and you recognize that's not happening. There is absolutely no way through human effort that I can save myself here. I am treading water There are waves crashing over my head in this troubled sea. I don't even know where the land is and I'd have to swim for 18 weeks without sleep, food, or water to get anywhere. This pictures the utter folly of trying to save yourself. I mean, we all appreciate the person treading water. What else are you going to do but Try, but you're really not going to save yourself here. There's only one answer, and that is a rescue that comes from outside of you. Somebody has to show up. If no one shows up, you can swim like no one else on earth has ever swam before, but you're not going to get there. Somebody else has to show up. And this is the beautiful news he has. He's come. The boat has come alongside and Jesus reaches his arm down and says, you you can't swim to shore. But you can trust me and take my hand and I'll get you there. He's died in our place to pay the penalty of our sin So that as we believe and trust in Him, by faith, apart from works of the law, rescue getting into the boat apart from trying to swim to shore. And once in the boat, there's fellowship, there's obedience, there's effort. But there's no sense that I've earned my salvation. This comes from outside of me. And is by His grace. Verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Another clarifier here. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Those that are the nitpickers about the prepositions, which is a good thing for a few of us to be, but verse 30, I don't think there's any point there that should be pressed by faith and through faith. I think he's just simply putting it here. There's one God. There's one way of salvation. And everyone, Jews and Gentiles, need to come the same way. It's by faith. It's by getting on this boat. That's it. It doesn't matter who you are. Maybe you're struggling in the water there next to somebody who's an Olympic swimmer. It is not going to matter. Not helping them at all. Whether Jews or Gentiles, with the law or without the law, circumcised or not circumcised, there's one God, there's one boat, there's one answer. It's Jesus Christ, and he will save those who believe. Those who put their trust and their confidence that he will rescue, he will rescue. Now, One, a Jew reading this might say, well, then you've just thrown out the Bible. You've just thrown out what we live for to obey God and to do what is right. If we're tracking with Paul, we're going to realize there's going to be some pushback. I'm not saved. I'm not pleasing to God by obeying His Word. Again, after salvation, yes, but not before. And that's what he's stressing, and that's why he says, verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By this law of faith. Again, a play on words. This law of faith, this way of faith, rather than this way of earning our salvation by obedience to the law. Do we then overthrow the the law by this faith? No, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He's going to go to the law now in chapter 4 and say, here it is, it's always been by faith alone. There's never been another way in God's conception. It's you who take these religious efforts and turn them into what they were never meant to be, a way to please God through my obedience. Let me be really clear here, Paul says, I am honoring the Scriptures. I'm not setting them aside. I'm not saying forget the Old Testament. It means nothing. It all pointed to this answer in Christ. Every Lamb that was sacrificed was screaming to the people, Jesus. They didn't know it, maybe. In some sense, there was a prospect of looking forward to Messiah, but they didn't get it. They didn't perceive it. They just knew they had to trust what God was saying. And that was that a lamb must die for sinners. But it was screaming, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. All the blood shed, all the smoke that was rising from the temple and the altar, it all said, Christ is coming. The answer is arriving. I'm not throwing out the Old Testament. I see it fulfilled in Christ. I'm upholding that message. So our judge... Back to this story. He cannot acquit his daughter. It's a miscarriage of justice. He cannot help her flee the country. He cannot bear to have his heart crushed by condemning her. But there is a conundrum there that cannot be solved, humanly speaking. It just can't be solved. He's going to have to do right and he's going to have to deeply suffer a crushed heart as a father by condemning his daughter to death row. F.F. F. Bruce notes in his commentary on Romans that the genre of Greek tragedies was a really hot product in the ancient world. These stories that were written uh, of the, the tragic hero. And the Roman poet Horace chided authors of these tragedies in his day for their itchy trigger finger in using what was called deus ex machina. That is, a literary device by which the author would resolve a challenging plot twist by introducing a god into the narrative who would swoop in at the right moment and fix everything. And Horace, this poet, was saying, would you guys quit doing this? You get this plot all twisted up and difficult and you don't think long and hard enough about how to bring it to resolution. You just introduce a God who comes in and fixes it all. Stop this. He wrote this, do not bring a God onto the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a God to solve it. Well, that's where we are here that's right where we've come to a problem that deserves a god who can solve it we grasp this together as god's people there is no other answer there's never been one devised every World religion, every religious endeavor to bring pleasure to God and to fit ourselves, to stand in the presence of God, everyone, one, the answer is do good and get good. You do good and you earn God's favor. Whatever system it is, at the end of the day, that's really its orientation. We need to do religious things in order to make ourselves acceptable to God. It's skirting the whole point. It might work nicely in comparing myself with my neighbors. I do better than them. God will certainly take me in next to them. But it doesn't do any good when you stand before a holy judge. The judge's daughter might have killed fewer people than some others. She might have been able to look to members of that gang and said, I'm better than this person, I'm better than this person. I just got into a bad day in a bad situation. I didn't really have a choice here, but I, I'm better than... means nothing before the judge. You're better than other people in your gang. You killed five people and you're standing here in my courtroom. You're guilty. All world religions seek on, the, on this big stage to do good and to get good in return. Religious deeds and religious knowledge and pedigree is what it's all about. They're ways of gaining God's favor, with uh, gaining God's favor in, 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 to enter into His presence. But let's come back down to the smaller stage, to us. Are you trusting in good deeds? Are you trusting in religious works? Are you trusting on doing better, on learning from your mistakes, going to church, reading your Bible, praying, being a decent person? Are you relying on that? These might all be good things in their place. As Paul said in 3.2, what advantage does the Jew have? Much in every way. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. To have the word of God, to seek to obey it, to seek to be a decent person is a good thing as far as it stands, but it can do nothing before the God of the universe. There's only one answer in the universe for how God can remain unimpeachably just and yet justify sinners, and this is it. Verse 24, We are justified, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. We are justified, verse 28, by faith apart from works of the law. Here we part ways with all human religion. Here we part ways with all religious activity, all rites and signs and efforts, and tradition. Here, we reach up out of the sea of depravity and judgment for the hand of Jesus Christ, who died in our place, who rose again and will lift us into His rescue. He will ransom and redeem those who trust Him. Have you trusted Him that way? apart from yourself, your own deeds, your religious labors. This call is before us. This offer is before us. This Christ alone is the Savior who solves the conundrum of of justification. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for what Christ has done for us as your people those that have been called out of this darkness and have responded because of the work that you have done from eternity past to identify us as your own, to call us to yourself, to grant us grace and salvation. I pray that the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone that flows from this passage will not land on hard hearts and flow off. For any trusting in their own way before you, any rejecting your salvation knowingly, I pray that you bring conviction, bring them to the light, and bring them to the joy of knowing forgiven sin and knowing the one who has forgiven us, knowing the one who paid the price. Bring them to that light today, we ask it in Christ's name.